We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. You should be able to go out there and exist in sport and be able to win without having that baggage. And I think that as black athletes, we always have baggage with us, you know, and it's society's baggage that they force us to carry. And it, it stinks because you are at an unfair disadvantage. And there are things that my white teammates never have to experience, never have to think about. And I'm just always having to have like, you know, this lens um, and, and having to have it in order to protect myself all the time. So one of my favorite things about this podcast is that it often puts me in contact with people who have used their talent to transcend. Today's guest certainly fits that bill. In 2016, she won a bronze medal in fencing, becoming the first female Muslim American athlete to ever medal in the Olympics. The crazy part is that she's done so much since then, it might be the least impressive thing on her resume. Ibtihaj Muhammad joins me to talk about her Olympic experience and her experience in general living as an African-American Muslim woman in this country right now during this volatile time. All that and more next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered. This is why I love having off-air conversations with my guests, especially guests that I feel like I know. If you and I, like, I feel like we were on sort of this banquet award circuit kind of at the same time. Right. Um, and that's how we, we got to know each other well. But see, you just made me feel good because you admitted that you swear. <laughs> because I, I was thinking like, oh my goodness, every time I, I see you, like you're always just so put together, you know, <laughs> just so graceful and so regal. And obviously you're beautiful. And so that just made me feel good knowing that you swear. So I tell you, if you swear one time on this podcast, I might go running out this room because that'll be awesome. <laughs> I, you know, it's funny. I feel like when I swear, I feel like I feel my parents peering at me. So I feel like I feel an immense amount of guilt. But I do curse. I do. But I mean, I don't know. Uh, yeah. You're like, I, I, I do. It's kind of like finding out your teacher's first name. You're like, right. oh, my God, her name is not Miss Johnson. It's Pam. What? Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. It's no, but it's funny because I do feel like I've known you forever. But it's one of those things that even when... When I first met you, it was like, I feel like I knew you already. I feel like that with um, with black people generally, you know, like you feel like you're probably cousins. I feel like we kind of look alike. So I'm like, yeah, Jamel, that's my girl, <laughs> <Yeah>. right? <laughs> it's like the six degrees of, of black people, for sure. I'm oh. sure if we go two or three degrees, we'll find some kind of common link, be it, you know, um, geographical. Um, I call it Negro geography. That's what I call it. <laughs> So, I mean, it's that's kind of what it is. Like, you'll find some link. We're all related. We're all family. Um, in addition to being related by a lot of similar experiences. But um, you in particular, I don't know what you have more of, awards or jobs. <laughs> okay. 
Uh, for those who may not be familiar, um, obviously bronze medalist, 2016 Olympics in Rio, first Muslim American female athlete to ever medal in the Olympics, uh, first woman to compete uh, in a hijab at the 2016 Olympics as well. You're on the list of Times 100 Most Influential People, which I think is pretty cool. Uh, are you still a sports ambassador with the U.S. Department of State? Yeah, I don't know if it's ever a position that um, you get cut from unless <laughs> Trump is in office. But that's, what I, that's why I said, that's why I asked. Right? I, like, no bullshit. That is exactly why I asked. I was like, I don't know how it's rolling over there now. So the State Department thing, I've, I've been a part of for a really long time. Uh, I feel really strongly about my work, um, not even abroad, but also within the States as just a sports ambassador. Um, but right before Obama left office, um, he... Uh, I was added to um, the president's council on fitness, health, and nutrition. And it was like literally the day before he left. And there were a lot of us. And it was super, it's super diverse, like Jason Collins, um, Simone uh, Biles, uh, Carly Lloyd. And soon as this change of administration happened, I got a phone call from some person who was like, you know, I'm, you know, in this position. And I was just wondering if you were ever sworn in. And I was like, well, no. And the phone went dead. And like, I know that for sure Jason Collins was told that he was no longer a part of it. Um, but I, I'm sure that uh, I feel like we all know why. But for me, like, it was just like, oh, no one ever swore you in. So therefore, it yeah, it didn't really happen. Yeah. Um, a raggedy president with a raggedy administration. Shocking. Mm -hmm. uh, you also have your own clothing company, Luella. I do. Yeah. I okay. Do, yeah. Um, your own Barbie. First uh, hijab Barbie. Yeah. And did you play with Barbies growing up? I was the queen of Barbie growing up. Mm. Did you play with Barbies? Hell yeah, I played right? with Barbies. Um, I always find it weird when people don't. I'm like, what'd you do with your free time? <laughs> <laughs> but it, it was uh, because I was such a tomboy, I also played with G.I. Joes. Mm -hmm. And I'm old enough to remember when Michael Jackson had a doll. And so what I did was I made an interracial relationship between my Barbie and Michael Jackson. Mm. I know in 2019... Who knew how strange that would sound now? So but, you had white Barbies. Yeah, I did. Ah. I'd never had a black Barbie. I didn't know. I don't know if black Barbie existed. I'm old. Remember this. Like at that point, I'm not sure when black Barbie came into existence, but right. I don't recall seeing one until I got way past Barbie. Like Barbie face. Yeah. But oh. I had the Barbie Corvette. Okay. Had Want, that. I wanted the house so bad. Uh-huh. Um, never leveled up and got the house. But, <laughs> um, you know, because... Uh, uh, I came from humble beginnings. What I used to do is cut off the top of a sock, of a tube sock, and like make Barbie with like, uh, you know, basically a, a, a maxi dress. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I made clothes for my Barbie. I did too. Did you? Okay. I did. My mom was into crafts, but um, I had like some dollhouse. I don't know if it was a Barbie dollhouse, but I had like a big, like wooden structure, three story dollhouse, pool on the roof. I had an RV. Wow, like I was Barbie very serious about these Barbies. Dang. But what I thought was your Barbie cool, leveled up. <laughs> right. But what was cool about my parents was that like white dolls did not come into our house at all. Like I've never had a white doll. Um, all of our dolls were brown, had hair like ours, maybe not hair like ours, but. Um, we definitely had dolls of color. And I think that was my parents' effort to make sure that their kids saw themselves represented, mm. you know, um, in doll play. So you, um, did they let you pick the dolls or did they introduce you to them? And so then you made active decisions to, um, you probably didn't know anything well, else. Well, I knew that I had to have a, I knew I had to have a doll that had brown skin. So I could go into the store, toy store and if I already had like Megan and 
whatever the other doll's name was, and those were the two brown dolls on the shelves, I didn't get a Barbie that day. You know mm. what I mean? Gotcha. So um, I, I, I was very conscious and aware of my blackness, but that was because I was, you know, the child of an educator. You know, my my mom was like on it from the time we were kids. Like our, our uh, picture books and things that we read were always about like prolific, like, you know, black athletes or um, people who like movers and shakers um, that changed our lives, you know, um, as as African-Americans. So I was very aware of of race from a, from a young age. Um, now, were you also equally cognizant of the f- of the fact that not just aware of race, but aware of how people perceived people who are not, you know, brown, uh, black and brown, how they perceived who you were? Like, were you aware that I'm a, you know, I'm different, that people are looking at me differently than they do other people? Um, I would say not until I was in high school. And that was through sport. Like, growing up, I really thought that, and coming from a very diverse town, I was, I'm from Maplewood, New Jersey, and it was a bubble. You know, I was comfortable. And I, I, I remember trying to, like, tell my parents, I'm like, no, they're not all like that. They're really nice, you know, and thinking that my parents are just crazy. And, you know, it's it taking a while for me to realize that they were, I don't know if they're trying to, like, you know, forewarn us of what may come and, what, like, you know, give us, give us an idea of, of um, what life would be like as black women or even for my brother as an African-American. But... Um, it wasn't something that I was really made aware of until I went until I participated in sports, specifically fencing, uh, volleyball as a kid who wore hijab. And when I went to Duke, I had complete culture culture shock. Mm, what was that like? So my first day on campus, uh, East Campus is just for the freshmen at Duke. And there was a kid who hung a Confederate flag outside of his window. And it was like, oh, so this is this is this is what it's going to be like. You know, you're you're going to have to um, perhaps you know uh, mix with people who may not like you based on really superficial things like the color of your skin. So, how did those experiences in in sport shape your perspective about race? I realized that things are a lot more difficult uh, in our country, for sure, for those of us who come from underserved and underprivileged backgrounds, uh, particularly those of us who exist in black and brown bodies. And I know that I, when I walk into a room, people have an idea of who I am without me even opening my mouth, right? They think that they know who I am. And that was my experience in fencing. And it was always really difficult because I experienced so much pushback in the sport as a kid. And I never understood it because I, I just wanted to, to perform. I just wanted to do well. And um, it was really hard for me to understand that, that perspective. And I don't think that I really learned to get a grasp on it until I got older. And I, I genuinely don't even think that it's something that kids should have to deal with, you know? Like, you should be able to go out there and exist in sport and be able to win without having that baggage. And I think that as black athletes, we always have baggage with us, you know? And it's society's baggage that they force us to carry. And it, it stinks because you are at an unfair... Um, you You are, to me, at a disadvantage. And there are things that my white teammates never have to experience, never have to think about. And I'm just always, I'm always having to have like, you know, this lens um, and, and having to have it in order to protect myself all the time. So what kind of pushback 
did you um, receive uh, early on as you were kind of really getting involved? Not that it stopped. I don't want to make a scene yeah. like that. But just early on, I mean, because you started fencing when you were 12. Yeah. And so I can only imagine how these experiences, this pushback you were experienced at that age, what kind of, you know, what kind of damage that might have, have done. So what kind of pushback were you receiving? Well, a lot of pushback. And before I forget to say this, I feel like that pushback shaped me into who I am today, right? I'm a, I'm a kid who who maybe developed like a callus from it um, or did it make me stronger and like shape me into who I am today? I'm so unapologetic to who I am. So I'm like thankful for those experiences. You know, I don't think that I internalize pain in the same way that other people might. And um, I was very lucky to be on a high school fencing team that accepted and loved me for who I was, right? So, I mean, I just had the best experience as an athlete because I felt like I had a family of 100 kids, right? And um, when I would go to uh, fencing competitions outside of my, my, my township and, you know, you would have coaches or officials asked to see letters that said that I was wearing hijab for religious reasons. And not because they really care, but it's because let me try to throw her off her game. Let me try to, you know, make cause a big scene, make it a huge deal just to be difficult. And it was, it, it's, it was hurtful because it, it, it's like, does my coach have it? Like, am I going to be able to fence? And those were things that no one else had to deal with but so me. So there was always a certain anxiety you had when competing. Oh, yeah. But also because you just never knew when it was coming. It's like, I already know it's going to be something. And I saw it when I coached my high school team and my sister was on it. I saw it years and years later. My sister is six years younger than me. And I still saw it when I coached her. So I don't believe that that the world of fencing has changed much from the time when I was a kid. It has so much room to grow. And it's such a white male dominated space still to this day. There are very few coaches of color in the state of New Jersey with with, you know, over 100 high school fencing teams. How is that possible? You know, and why is it like that? And why is there so much pushback for black bodies within the sport? Now, what is it? I mean, despite experiencing that, what made you keep going as opposed to to thinking to yourself, I don't need this shit. I can do yeah, something else. Right? Like, so what, what was it that drove you to keep going despite having these experiences? The initial thought in fencing was not that I loved it. It was not that like, even now, like, I don't love the sport of fencing. I would never use that word to describe, you know, why, why I was ever involved in it. But for me, I, I saw fencing as a means to an end. My dad's a narcotic detective. My mom was a teacher. So one of five kids, you have to be very creative with how you plan to pay for college. And when I looked at the top 10 schools in the country, they all have fencing teams. So for me, it was like an easy decision. I was like, oh, I'm gonna keep, I'm a fence. And I remember at, like trying to get, I had three really close girlfriends in high school, all um, African-American um, and trying to get them to fence with me. We all played volleyball together. And after volleyball ended, I'm like, you know, let's try a fencing winter sport. And they went to tryouts with me and we looked into this like cafeteria full, like the sea full of like white athletes. And they were like, absolutely not. <laughs> and I was like, you'll see, I'm going to go to a good school. And I kept fencing and I mean, for me, it was, again, a means to an end. I want to go to a good school. A means to an end that led to you being an Olympian and a medalist. Well, look, I... <laughs> That's crazy. Right. It is kind of crazy. But to answer your question, it is um, me just being competitive. 
Mm. I am so competitive. I've always been like this. I think it comes from coming from a large family, but um, you know, just like fight, like not fighting, but just having this this like fun competition with my siblings all the time. Like we would be outside, like you know, shooting horse or racing each other, like in the pool, like at the track, just always having fun. And I think that that, that competitiveness um, from a really young age really lended itself to, to developing and becoming a strong athlete. So, um, you know, putting aside the fact that you were very intentional about the sport you chose because you were thinking about college, if that weren't a factor, what was the sport that you played that you did love? Mm-hmm. Um. Well, I'm so competitive that I would want to be good at whatever I'm doing, right? And volleyball, I was like, I was okay. I wasn't like, you know, Carrie Walsh, or right? I wasn't like amazing. <laughs> that's a so, pretty high bar. Like. That's the high, but that's to me, like, th- that's my bar in life. Like, yeah. I'm trying to, like, be Obama in life, right? So if I'm not going to be Obama, I don't really want to do it. But I'm also like that crazy person that thinks I can do anything. And um, I wasn't, you know, existing in volleyball and not, and not trying not to be good. You know what I mean? Like I was really like busting my ass to like be really good. And that was in volleyball, that was in fencing, and that was the same in softball. And um, the reason I actually stopped playing softball was because I was the only black kid on the team and the girls on the team gave me the hardest time about it. I hated it. Really? Oh well, yeah, I hated what it. Was, what happened there? Like what experiences um, did you have to go through? Like or no effort to ever like make me feel included or be my friend. Um, I remember really sly comments like, Oh, I'm so ex- I'm so thankful to have you as my backup. Just like really backhanded comments like that that still stick with me today. Um, and it's just interesting to see how life pans out. It's like actually you never had your shit together. You know what I mean? Oh my and, God, you cursed twice. Right? I don't know what I'm going to do now. <laughs> I mean, now it's like, it's just going to be like a water flow. Of- <laughs> I just feel like, um, yeah, like... It was just interesting how people would use words and use moments to try to make you feel inferior. And at the time, I knew that it wasn't right and I knew that it hurt, but I didn't understand why they were doing it. And now as an adult, it totally makes sense. They don't want you to see your full potential. It probably, you know, pained them that you were faster than them, that you're maybe stronger than them. And it's like, I want her not to to know this, right? Or to think that she can't or that she's not capable or that she's not very fast. And that's something that I even see as a professional athlete. You know, there are efforts that are made to make you feel inferior then. And um, I just didn't have time for that. And in softball, and that's, and it was easy decision, especially once I started to to fence more seriously in high school. Um, now, um, you know, given the fact that you, you play so many different sports, how do you feel like having those different um, you know, tools in your wheelhouse, having played volleyball, softball, how did that help you in, in your success as a fencer? I feel like I was playing volleyball because my best friends played and it was an opportunity for me to spend a lot of time with them. And um, I mean, as soon as I left volleyball, especially by the time I was, you know, a sophomore, junior, senior, when I left volleyball, I was, my mom was picking me up. I was eating my food in the car on the way to the train station to go to, go to New York City defense. And then, you know, fencing for a few hours, taking the train, doing my homework on the train, back to Jersey, and then going to sleep and doing it all over again the next day. I had like a very crazy, intense life as a kid, especially in high school. But um, it was really just because I wanted more than anything to excel as an athlete and as um, a, you know, academic in a sense. That was that was just the plan. I knew I knew that 
in order to be successful in life, those two things had to go right. And I was just doing everything that I could to make sure that I was constantly just growing and getting better. How important was it for you to be involved in a sport where you could be outspoken and could outwardly show your faith, whether people were able to accept that or not? I don't know if I arrived to that until I, to be completely honest, when I signed with the agent that I have now. And that was, you know, on the heels of me qualifying for the Olympic team and making it very clear that I wanted representation or, you know, like a management team that was going to give me room to um, express, to be expressive, right? And to literally put my communities on my back, whether that be as an African-American or as a Muslim. I, I, I've never shied away from using my voice and it was frustrating to constantly you know, be silenced or the efforts be made, you know, to silence my voice uh, just coming up as an athlete, especially on Team USA. Yeah, I would imagine because there's a certain brand that comes with being Team USA that there's a lot of pressure mm -hmm. that they put on conformity, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, did you find yourself in some um, conflicts with them a lot because you wanted to remain uh, outspoken? Not even conflicts, like, they would, you know, shoot an email or a text message or a phone call to be like, hey, we need you to delete this tweet. And I would say, absolutely not. And that's it. You know, it's just I mean, like, what they're going to do ultimately. But also, it's not your Twitter. Like, you don't have to write an you to retweet it. Right. Like, it's not your Twitter. Um, I, I have always felt really strongly about being an agent of change. And I never looked. I knew that they weren't going to be there to support me like, in these efforts because it. What, how does it benefit them? You know what I mean? So having um, qualifying for an Olympic team during the height of the presidential election, you have, you know, candidates who are clearly trying to make for a very divisive America, right? And, and trying to create this other, particularly around uh, communities of color in the Muslim community. And it's like, oh, I have to use my platform right now. I don't have a choice. All the questions that I got were about Trump, Muslim ban. So who am I to to qualify for a team as a Muslim, a visibly Muslim woman and say, I'm not going to say anything. That that wouldn't be authentic to who I am. Um, but I'm sure that especially uh, given the success that you had the, at the Olympics, they were more than willing to have, you know, to, to attach themselves to that publicity, right? Um, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. They don't care about me. It's so funny because, you, uh, yeah, I mean... <laughs> I'm just gonna. I think USA fencing is trash. I really do. They um, have. They don't support me at all, uh, and they don't. There. I mean, you wouldn't even know that there's any kind of attachment. I feel like I've transcended sport. It's not about fencing at this point. You know what I mean? Like, yes, I'm a fencer. Yes, I won an Olympic medal with my team, but it's not about that that particular platform. I feel like I'm, I'm bigger than them. I'm bigger than them on every single social platform. I'm bigger than them in terms of the the footprint that I've, that I've kind of created and the waves that I've created. And a lot of that uh, comes from me being being comfortable with standing up for myself and my communities. I feel like USOC has been there for me 100%. I have, um, I'm really close with a guy named Chris Coleman, who uh, was a Winter Olympian, African-American, and has literally taken me under his wing from uh, the time before I even qualified for an Olympic team. He's the one who set me up with Wasserman Media, uh, my management team. So I feel like 
um, the support maybe has been there from like the top, from like bigger people, but maybe not not as much so within my my particular sport. That is astounding to hear, given um, your popularity, especially when it comes to showing the representation. You would be an incredible vital asset for them for them to position right i mean i don't think you could find one post retweet or anything about me regarding like barbie book um like any of like op-ed pieces anything that i've done it doesn't exist why because the support was never there it would be you know like um and authentic like for them to do that that's just they, they're not interested i don't represent their brand and you have to remember i'm a black Muslim woman with a voice, not afraid to use it. There, they, I feel like there's. It's almost like without saying it, they want to kind of remain this, this, this sport um, that historically has been white and male for a long time, Mm-mm, even if it comes at their expense, which is uh, kind of ridiculous. Now, hearing you, um, especially talk about uh, just what your life was like in high school and juggling so many things. I now understand how you're able to juggle so many things, you know, now, but um, things are always different when you're an, an adult. So, like, how do you handle doing all this, you know, having a book, uh, being uh, put into the activist space? Like, how do you manage it all? I don't know. I mean, I I could ask you the same question, but it's not my podcast. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I will willingly tell you. I don't know. It's right. day to day. That's yeah. what I tell people. Right. I was like, day to day. <laughs> right. When people are like, hey, you want to do something next week? I'm like, nope, because I got to get through tomorrow. You know what I mean? It's like, I just feel like I'm one of those people who is constantly like, I'm not doing enough. I'm not doing enough. I'm not doing enough. So, so you feel like you're not doing enough? All the time. Oh every my day. Goodness. I feel like my life is literally like unraveling in my mind. But I think that that is what... Um, I don't think that I'm unique in a sense. I think that a lot of people who are successful probably feel that way. You know, like you're a go-getter naturally. And to me, that is my type A personality. I just want to do a lot. I want to do it really well. And I'm just constantly thinking and going. And I I know that without having a squad and strong group of people around me, I wouldn't be able to like stay afloat. So I feel like I, I owe a lot to having... A supportive team around me that that keeps me going. Um, well, and I guess of all the the list of titles that you had, I guess one I should add to it is retiree, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, although I thought it was interesting that you used the word unofficially yeah. retired. Well, I didn't know that he was going to print it, so <laughs> I was surprised as everybody else when I read it. I was like, oh no, he didn't. <laughs> um, I did. I'm so. I don't know if I was tired, if I hadn't had coffee, if I didn't eat that morning. But I did not think that that interview was going to be about me, and it ended up being like this announcement that I've, you know, retired from from sport. And it was something that I've known for a while, you know, but. It takes a long time as an athlete to come to terms with ending your life in sport. You know, it's it's difficult. It's the hardest decision I've ever made in my life. And sometimes I'm not, you know, I feel like 100% about it. But um, yeah, it was hard. I mean, I, I asked a lot of people and you got to be careful who you ask. You can't ask the lifers who are like in it till the end, till they like have a cane and shuffling down the court. You can't ask those people, right? I, I really like... um. I had to do deep soul searching to to arrive at a point. And, you know, I feel like if if I had a better relationship with teammates and with uh, if I had a better NGB, 
that supported me, a national governing body, I think that I could have competed for longer. But um, I felt content with my career after the Olympics. I mean, it sounds like based off what you just said there, there's a part of you that was a little kind of put off by the maybe some of the treatment you've received and that that made the decision a little easier for you to to come to. I mean, I talk I talk about the I go I do like play by play of the mistreatment in my book Proud, but I if I mean people wouldn't even believe the stuff that I um that I had to, you know, undergo as an athlete and still, you know, show up and win medals and qualify for this team. And um when you look at it, especially now on the outside, right? So like, you you know, writing a book is very therapeutic, writing in general, right? But as an athlete, if I, you know, um, hung on every single moment, everything that happened, I wouldn't be sitting here today. I wouldn't have qualified, wouldn't have won the medal. So I feel like I kind of took the hits in stride, kept my head down, was super myopic and just kept trudging forward. But the book gave me the opportunity to think about these things, to really unpack why it happened, when it happened, why it happened, and to look back and say, like, damn, that's a lot. That's heavy. Like, do I need therapy? Like, is this a therapy session? You know, like, it's a lot. And the reason that, you know, I I told my story, two reasons. One, to hold people accountable for their actions and hopefully have them think about the way they treat other people. Um, but also to make it easier for the next girl who comes through that team. You know, people talk about hijab and me being Muslim for Team USA, but I'm also the first woman of color on the women's saber team, which I think is like, that's that's like big, right? Why is it in 2016 there had never been a woman of color on that team? And I've always thought of it as a very in- intentional move, right? There's a lot of nepotism that happens in fencing when you have national coach who wants their students or their kids, you know, to make teams um, or, you know, someone who shares a, like a same native language as them, right? Uh, that That's problematic, right? Because that conversation hardly ever includes black kids. And um, I just want it to be easier. I swear I want it to be easier for the next kid, even if it's them finding comfort in, in, in hearing my story. Uh, you mentioned that your relationship with your, your teammates, um, you know, wasn't, Great. Um, uh, what happened there? Why was that relationship not as good as it could have been? Well, fencing is an individual sport first, right? Mm-hmm. So when you have, when you look at any of these sports, right, where the athletes are literally competing against each other, and then maybe in one event you get to win a medal together, or you get to compete together under like this flag of Team USA, it's a contentious space. And people who pretend that it's not, they're lying. Right. When you look at sports like gymnastics, when you look at sports like even swimming to to sit and believe that everybody is kumbaya and there are rainbows floating through the air and everybody is friends is false. (laughs) And I know that within my sport, within fencing, it was it was difficult, just a difficult space to navigate through. And I like not being invited to, to team dinners, not being told about team practices or then being ridiculed for not showing up to things that I was never extended invitation to. Um, it was hard. And I remember at some point I just decided, thank God I came to this, like, you know, I had this epiphany. I was just like, you know, like, forget this. I'm just going to like do my own thing. I'm going to like enjoy my time with my sister. I have a younger sister who traveled with me, uh, who competed for Team USA. I'm like, I'm going to spend time with my sister. I'm going to spend time with one of my close friends, Paola, who friends from Mexico. I'm going to utilize the time with them um, 
that things that brought me joy, right? Like traveling to different countries, trying different foods, um, and kind of living like my experiences for what they were. Like there's joy in being having the opportunity to compete, you know, in Russia or France or Germany, wherever you are. Like so, so many people don't have that chance, right? So I kind of chose happiness and started to ignore these efforts to kind of change how I felt about myself. You think that especially once your popularity really started to explode, do you think some of your fencing teammates were frankly jealous? Oh, 100%. I already know it's a it's a jealousy thing, especially when um, I qualified for the team Forget It. It was like, it, like the lines were in the sand. Like it was like, I mean, to the point where, and this is not something that I even talk about in the book, at the Olympic Games, you have a long span of time where you're just training. They wouldn't even fence with me, which is so crazy. So like I was fencing with the guys. I was training with the guys because my own teammates wouldn't wouldn't train with me. And um, yeah, it was crazy. Like I can think of so many different moments where like you're, you know, at you're getting your apparel and stuff. You're taking, you know, all, all of Team USA goes to Houston uh, to get the apparel, uh, the Olympic apparel, and you get you're taking photos and all these different assets that they use at the games. Like my team refused to do anything with me, and it's it's like as hurtful as it is. You know what I mean? You just learn to like it's like whatever. This is it's so it's so ridiculous that it's almost funny. You know, it's like a it's literally like a real life movie, right? Like Mean Girls. I feel like I was living Mean Girls, right? And I just arrived at a point in my life where I just stopped caring, so uninterested. And as a person of faith, like religion is so important to me and believing in God's plan for me that um, I just knew that my 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 goal and my efforts in life were bigger than, you know, uh, the way that the way I was being treated. So I just stopped caring. So on this podcast, we call that being unbothered. A hundred percent. You like how I right? did that? <laughs> right? Sir, take it. Take us back. Circle back. I, that honestly, that yeah. literally was what it was. All right. And people feel angry when you are unbothered. That infuriates. They them. do, which is why that's like the best space. Mm-hmm. Um, I think to be in. It, it was a big reason uh, why I certainly named this podcast after that because I felt like mentally I was in that space where I just truly had run out of fucks. Like they were gone. Quite honestly, if I even had them to begin with. I mean, there might have been a, you know, in my early 20s, I might have had like a half a fuck, but that was probably <laughs> about it. Um, but yeah, um, definitely want to get more Unbothered Talk from you. Uh, but we're going to take a quick break and more with Ibnihaj Muhammad after the break. One of the things, I mean, there's a lot of things that are fascinating about you, but I find that you, at least from outside looking in, that you're able to kind of comfortably navigate this space of of faith and race. Um, For a lot of people who 
maybe are not um, on a regular or even occasional basis who don't know people of the Muslim faith, but and are not aware of the different dynamic of when you're an African American Muslim. Um, just can you just talk about like the challenges and the, and the dynamic of specifically being an African American Muslim woman in this country, especially in this climate? Well, it's definitely a difficult time uh, to be an African-American, to be a Muslim, even to be a woman. And to be all three is like, yeah, you know, I, was the like, trifecta. I feel like you got three strikes. right? Exactly. Now. <laughs> You're the trifecta, right? You got yeah. a lot yeah. uh, going on. But, you know, I always say that being a black Muslim, you know, it's. You know, you're not Muslim enough for the Muslim community. You're not black enough for the black community. And it's just this weird kind of middle ground that you're hanging in where you're just like trying to find your footing in your space. You know, I feel like I, you know, like publicly people always want to talk about the face. It's just a visible thing, right? Hijab, it's like this this buzzword right now. Um, So people assume that I'm from the Middle East, right? And that I'm not. No, like very few people... Um, you know, think of me as being an African-American woman, which is crazy. I feel like I lead with that, right? I'm like, I'm black. It's just who I am. And um, it it's really frustrating because one of the things that was really important to me in during this time of qualifying for the Olympic team was to, uh, you know, dispel these myths around being a Muslim, right? You know, people think of Muslims as being immigrants, which I'm not, Um you know, being Arab, which I'm not, being oppressed, which I'm not, right? Um, having someone like force me to wear hijab, which no one forces me to do this. So I'm like, let me kind of shatter these stereotypes in one fell swoop just by existing in this space on Team USA. And I had the opportunity to show that, you know, African-American Muslims make up a huge portion, like a third of the Muslim population here in the United States and are the first to come to the United States. Like we actually came over on slave ships, like there were Muslims on slave ships. So that's the first reference point of Islam in this nation. And to call it anything other than that to me is to continue to push this false narrative, age old, you know, uh, narrative that's existed for far too long. Yeah. And especially as a woman, as you mentioned, there is this narrative um because people here i don't think it's funny when i hear um americans like complain about going overseas in different countries about how americans are perceived i was like we do the we do the same thing like we probably are worse mm. because we tend to revel and double down in our our ignorance um i often i've told this story a few times not necessarily on this podcast but um when the world cup was in south africa in 2010 I was fascinated by the South Africans. Obviously, I'm talking about the black people, their perceptions of African-Americans from, you know, I mean, it was kind of hilarious because they all made it seem like we were all living out a Lil Wayne video. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I cracked up because I remember being at, at this mall in Johannesburg and I don't know how, because I thought I just looked regular, but they always knew I was American before I even said anything. I don't know if it's the way I was dressed. I mean, I wasn't, you know, walking around in, in like FUBU or anything. Like, right. it was like, I, don't like, know I why. wonder why. Yeah, I, but they always knew. And a mm. security guard asked me, he was like, you're from America? And I was like, yeah. And he he leaned out real close to me like it, it was some kind of state secret or, um, <laughs> you know, lives were at stake. He was like, do you know Whitney Houston? I'm like, oh, gosh. It's like, <laughs> Have you been back since? I have not been. I love South Africa. Okay. Loved it. And so mm. um, I was like, um, 
Yes, I do. I knew you would. I knew you knew her. I was like, I absolutely know. Well, before, I'm sorry, after he asked me if I was American, he asked, was I from New York? Mm. It's like, no. And then Los Angeles, because those are the two cities people know in America. And I was like, I live in Florida. And he was like, is that close to New York? I was like, never. Mm, (laughs) It's just like 22 hours away. And then he's like, do you know Whitney Houston? I was like, absolutely. I know Whitney Houston. (laughs) She's one of my girls. Like, I do. But it was just always these questions and things that would come up where they'd ask me things about America. And I was like, is that what y'all think of us? But again, we're even worse, you yeah. know, here about what we think about other religions, other other races, and especially with not just the Muslim ban, but just all the conversation post 9-11, especially, mm-hmm. that has surrounded the Muslim faith um, has really led to a swell of not just ignorance, but just complete intolerance. So I can only imagine you being a Muslim woman on top of being black, obviously. Just the perceptions that people have of your womanhood because of of your faith. And how do you handle that? Uh, It's difficult. You know, I find the airport to be one of the most triggering places. Oh, I can imagine. Uh, You know, but I think that... Especially if you're if you're black and just flying in business class, I think it can be like a, a tough space. But as a, a woman who wears hijab, just going through you know TSA is hard. You know to be asked like, "Do you speak English?" is so infuriating. Um, to be asked to take your hat off when clearly this cute hijab that I have on is for it's, religious reasons. You know, it's like so, you work at an airport. Do you know the manner right, and, the, and the different right. people that come through an airport? You've never seen one. It's, and I feel like you know sometimes I'm tired and I don't have time, but other days I have time, ooh. and I use it as you know a teaching moment for you know TSA agents. Like you cannot um, be presumptuous and be rude. And it may fly with like the little auntie who's not going to say anything to you, but you got the wrong hijabi today. Like I have time. So I have to like snatch people up at the airport (laughs) and help them understand that they can't treat people, you know, this way. This is you're you're in a service position. You're here to provide a service and you're not here to make people feel bad or to make people feel inadequate or make people question whether or not they belong at the freaking airport. Now, you you gathered somebody at South by Southwest a couple years ago. So ridiculous, yeah. right? But that is an experience that, unfortunately, like I've had since then. That's the crazy thing, like it, at the airport. It was a volunteer, um, and correct me if I if I have this wrong anyway. But a volunteer South by Southwest asked you to remove your hijab, right, for a photo to get into South by Southwest for, your for ID. a photo it's for a photo. For the ID. And mind you, I was a speaker, right? So it was like, it was a lot wrong with the situation. And um, even after I explained to him, it was for religious reasons, he kind of pushed me on it. He's a white guy. So he's like, no, no, no. Like, you're not special. Everybody has to do it. So I am upset at that point, but he gives me the ID. I leave. I sit down. I have lunch. I'm sitting down. I'm eating. And I look at the ID. Did you actually remove it? No. Okay, I didn't think so. I'm not removing this hijab for anybody. (laughs) You will have to take me off to Rikers Island, and even then I'm still not removing it. But um, I had the idea. I sat down at lunch, and I look at the idea, and I was like, who the hell is Tamir Muhammad, right, who works for, like, Coca-Cola? I was like, who is this? Like, Tamir's a guy's name. Like, who is this person? So then I have to circle back. And then I'm just pissed at this point. Gave me the wrong name. Oh, my goodness. So I literally was just sitting there, and I, like, quickly, like, 
took a picture and tweeted it. I was like, first of all, it's ridiculous that someone would ask me to re- to remove this like religious headwear for a photo, but also like the ignorance, you know? And then also who's Tamir? So poor Tamir was all over Twitter. He was trending on Twitter, poor guy. Um, but yeah, it, it wasn't, it's not my intention in that moment. I just want to sh- 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 show people that if Iptihaj as a public figure experiences these things, imagine how, you know, um, normal it is for the rest of like, you know, whoever, like Fatima, uh, I don't know, like Faiza, whoever it is, uh, these experiences that, like you said, they're, they're, they come from a place of, of discrimination and bigotry and, and misconceptions, and it's frustrating. Yeah, one of my good friends, um, Amina, she, uh, her name is, uh, she's Muslim, but she has the double whammy, is her last name is Hussein. Mm-hmm. And we went on a vacation together, me, her, and another friend, and even though she has global entry, she had to go through security uh, she had, she got special uh, the special screening twice. Mm-hmm. She's like, I'm global entry. And right. we knew it was because of her first and last name. Oh, yeah, they're flagging her name. And, and I told mm-hmm. her, and I was just like, man, I really, really would have hated to be traveling if I were you right after 9-11. Because oh, yeah. I can only imagine how awful that experience was. And especially people see the name and, um, you know, why she doesn't wear a hijab. I I can only imagine what that response would be. Now, you said it's happened to you since that. Um, how did you This handle- was at LAX. The TSA agent asked me to take my hat off. So this kind of stuff happens. Like, I mean, it- A major city like LA. It's, it's crazy. It is crazy. And you wonder, it's like, is it a lack of education? Is it you just being a jackass? Like, what is it that would even, that would even, you know, lead you to ask me that? And- I'm even in that moment, I was very patient with this woman. And, you know, she pushed, like, there was a lot of pushback on her end. And I felt like she was talking down to me. And this is where I think um, my black identity comes in. Because I feel like, um, you, she, she said, I knew you were going to give me a problem. And I asked her, I said, so, let's take a minute. You know, is it, what about my appearance led you to believe I was going to give you a problem? I was like, is it because I'm black? Is it because I'm Muslim? Like, explain it to me. Like, let's talk about it. And I was like, actually, let me talk to your supervisor about it. And I explained to this African-American supervisor woman at TSA, and she was trying to make excuses for her. She said, well, you know, um, maybe she didn't know. I was like, that's okay that she doesn't know. But that doesn't mean that um, that you're aggressive, that you're derogatory, and that you have to talk down to me. I was like, I'm sorry, but there's other ways to handle it. Actually, it's kind of not okay that she doesn't know. I'm because you know, this is like basic. You know what I but mean? But if you don't know, this is what you say. Excuse me. Like you have to remove your headwear. You don't have to say like remove your hat. You know what I mean? Like it's not a hat. That's disrespectful. It's not a hat. It's not a Nike hat. I have on like a hijab, and to me, it's very clear that this is not a hat. And I will say this: I don't know who I'm offend when I say this, but if you are patting down hijabs, you need to pat down wigs too. It's same, same, right? What's the difference? Did you come after the wig community? I came after the wig community. There is no difference. We're both covering our hair. I'm standing behind that. There's some of these lace fronts. I mean, that's that's a that's a conversation for a different. Pat, pat it down. Pat, pat it down. I'm all for equality. <laughs> pat them down. I've had my hair patted on several occasions. No, you're a black woman, so Which they're going to come so for your odd. hair. It's like, do you make them change their gloves? 
No, I don't think I ever thought about it. Oh my God, yes. Oh, see, I'm getting educated now. Like, I, I, yeah, I just before go, they touch my hijab, I make them change their gloves. Really? That's yes. good. That's good. I was like, where have your hands been? Mm. Change your gloves, please. Change your gloves. Yeah. I'll remember that the next. It hasn't happened in a while, but that's because uh, you're Jamel Hill. <laughs> that's not <laughs> for like, the rest of us. Everybody doesn't recognize. I know you're not talking. <laughs> you're way more famous than I am. Oh, please stop <laughs> it. No, you're not stop talking. It. You're my like I name drop Jamel because I, all guys know you, right? 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 Because of ESPN. Because it was the ESPN. I'm like my friend, one of my really close friends. Um, who lives her husband is obsessed he's like you're doing jamel's podcast can i come i'm like no go to work work. no you can't come you would have been welcome right it's all good speaking see speaking of famous folks i just know that nobody as big as SZA was inducting me in my high school hall of fame that's all i know (laughs) that that was obviously your experience uh SZA and you went to the same high school though different times so um explain your link to to SZA so um, Solana went to high school with my two younger sisters, Faiza and Asiya. See, that's how you know you dropped that first yeah. name. <laughs> You're like, you guys know her SZA. She's Solana. <laughs> yeah. So she went to high school between my two younger sisters, wore hijab at Columbia High School. She's Muslim, American too. And um, she has very similar experiences of being bullied, finding it really difficult to navigate, you know, uh, school as as a muslim kid in a town that didn't have a lot of muslims and um it's funny because she solana says she she found strength in seeing my sister who's a bit older than her um who also wore hijab but she was inducted into the columbia high school hall of fame last year and when um my my school reached out to me my alma mater and they said you know uh who would you want to introduce you my favorite teacher, like Mr. Gavitt, my like AP government and politics uh, teacher, he had moved to Texas. And um, the other, like all the other teachers who were like, I'll do it, I'll do it. I'm like, I didn't have you. Who are you? Like, who are these people? Um, it just did, it wasn't authentic. It didn't make sense. So uh, she actually posted on Instagram, like uh, the Chowderia, which is like this famous pizza place in our hometown. And I was like, oh, she's in Maplewood. Let me just text her and Second see. Second humble brag. Right. Really good. <laughs> I just hit her up and I was like, can you do me a huge favor? Like, can you intro me at, you know, Hall of Fame? Uh, assembly and she's like yeah why not so I just felt like what a meaningful moment for for Columbia high school students to see one Muslim woman um, introduce another Muslim woman you know into the hall of fame and again it it flips the narrative onto its head it's showing these kids one that you know you don't have to live under society's limited expectations of you and um, that you can be successful uh, despite what people think about your your faith, your ethnicity, your gender, or your sexual orientation, or whatever it is, I imagine you probably couldn't even begin to name all the um, interesting and and fun and and cool celebrity experiences that you've had. Because you taught like didn't you teach Michelle Obama how to fence, or we're showing her some moves? Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> that, that's amazing. Right, love her. Yeah, that's my aunt actually. Is it really? No, I know, but I love her. <laughs> I see in your head. Right? I just had to check. Right. You never know. Love, you never we know. We just talked about how black people we we're all, all know each other. We're no, related. <laughs> right. So I'm hanging on to that. I may be related to the Obamas. Nice. Right. <laughs> so is there anybody who? Uh, was a, a fan of yours or reached out and it could be more than one person that you were honestly shocked that they knew who you were and, and were a fan? Um, I don't know. 
I am always like, I feel it's it's a very humbling experience, especially coming coming from a smaller sport for anyone to know anything about my journey or even what fencing is, right? So I always think that it's really cool. I also have the world's worst memory, so I probably couldn't tell you anything. I have the memory of, uh, what's her name, Dory on Finding Nemo? That's um, me. So this is when I tell you, uh, <laughs> uh, one of the biggest holes in my resume I don't watch animated movies. I've never seen Finding Nemo. Oh, I've never seen sad. any of the Toy Stories. No. Um, yeah. I, the, the animated. L- so you're a movie buff, but just not animated. Yeah, not really. I mean. Well, Finding Nemo was a movie I watched as a kid, though. I'm old. <laughs> okay, <laughs> That fine. was way past I have, me. Memory, I have the memory of a goldfish. <laughs> okay. Is okay. that, is that I, what that is? <laughs> right. Like, I think that's the saying. I honestly remember nothing. So I don't know if I have, like, a particular, like, celebrity... I mean, I would say other than the Obamas, I don't know if I can really think of anything. Like, I just think that it's so cool to see a family of color in the White House, but them them also, like, you know, reference you in speeches or have the opportunity to meet them and, and hang out with them. It's just, it's like, can you adopt me? Like, that's what I'm wondering. <laughs> but no, I, I, I... You turn to your parents. No disrespect to you no guys. No disrespect you, you to you, job, but, but I'm moving in with... <laughs> with the Obama. With Barry. <laughs> with Barry. Dang, not even... <laughs> Former president. She's like, right, Barry. I'm moving in with former president Barry. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, you know, I mean, but I always do think that that's one of kind of the, the cool things that may come from whatever form of celebrity you're able to attain is that you wind up being in these situations. I am super awkward, so I don't really know how to act around these people because I remember the first time that I met the Obamas at the White House, I didn't really know how to act but what put me at ease is before I could even introduce myself um to uh our forever president is because he he was like oh I watch you on ESPN all the time and and I just was standing there looking like an idiot because I couldn't believe he actually watched me and um the first lady is just like oh I love the way you stick it to those men and this and that and they're like super into it and I was like oh my god is this my life right now right but I mean I, I, that's what I find so endearing about the Obamas is that they make every single person that you know they have like a moment with feel special right and and I don't know if that's great people around them who are just like hey by the way <laughs> like this is who this is who knows but I I really find that endearing about them I love that yeah is 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 sort of. Um, they have this ability to put you at ease. Mm-hmm. And inside, internally, you may be freaking out. Right. Beyonce has that ability. Have you met Beyonce? No. Ha! Right. Uh, I've told this story on the podcast before, and I'll just quickly give the highlights. Beyonce and Jay-Z were in my Soul Cycle class. Mm-hmm. This most L.A. thing I've ever experienced. Angela. Yes. Yes. A- everybody knows Angela. Well, Angela <laughs> and I have the same agent. Yeah. <laughs> Dang, she got an agent? Yeah, right? Dang, Angela is super big time. So. Love her. And her... Uh, her son and my nephew are in the same class. Look at that. Six degrees. Seriously. Six degrees of black people. And we're cousins. So. <laughs> and we're cousins, of course. <laughs> I met Angela with the other Angela, Angela Rye, um, at an event at UCLA. And she was just like, oh, you should come to my class. Um, as being somebody who's relatively new to living in LA, I had no idea Angela was such a big deal and was the soul cycle teacher, especially in West Hollywood. So um, Angela Rye and I go to her class because Angela had been on me like, oh, we should, you, you got to try Soul Cycle, and, and I'm just like, man, I already do high yoga. I don't need that many things in my life where I have to sit in class and be like, how do I not die, mm. right? Mm-hmm. So uh, we go, and we're setting up on our bikes, and in walks Jay-Z and Beyonce. I was like, oh, my God. Like, what do I do? <laughs> I met them both, um, and Jay-Z, and maybe it's because I feel like I grew up with Jay-Z. 
that I don't have the same freak out mode with him. Yeah. Um, even though he's a big deal, arguably a lot of people consider the best rapper of all time. But her is like a completely unsettling experience. Mm -hmm. So I'm in the, but the good thing is I, I credit Beyonce because I didn't die in the soul cycle mm -hmm. class, clearly. Um, and seeing her, I was like, okay, I can't faint in front of Beyonce. Like, I gotta like really give this a try. Like, I really gotta do this. I can't be resting. I was like, if Beyonce rests, I'm gonna rest. Well, I feel like it's nice to know that Beyonce works out. <laughs> right? Like, I didn't know that. Well, I wouldn't attribute I, working out did there. You, did you see Homecoming? No. On Netflix, oh, empty. Like right. she is, she is now to me officially the greatest performer I've seen in uh, my lifetime. And realized I saw Michael Jackson, I saw Prince, I saw Janet. Janet would have been the other person, but her ability to maintain such stamina is. What was her last? Was it the Formation tour? Um, no, yes. the last one was on the run too with Jay Z. Oh, okay. So I the, went to or the, the Carters. Tour. I'm sorry. Yeah, I went to the Formation tour. She invited me to the Formation tour, and oh, did I she? was just like, <laughs> "Wait a second! Like she is. I mean, it's she is quite the performer. Like I've been to concerts, but I do a lot of rap concerts. Like people standing around, like every now and then, like saying a lyric. But she's, like, she's ruined impressive. the she ruins the concert experience for you because I saw her walk on water. Right. I'm not lying. <laughs> like she, when she did the, uh, I think this would have been formation, when uh, she just went all stadiums. Uh, I saw her with, uh, I saw her in Baltimore with a friend of mine, and I legit saw her walk on water, and I was like, I don't, I don't right. know what's happening here. Like this she's was, defying gravity. Do you these. remember when Serena, Serena was in the video? Yes, she came out during this and did like a spot during this stop. It was the MetLife uh, Stadium in Jersey stop, but very, I mean, like not. I mean, I don't really listen to that genre of music too much, but I was very, very impressed with everything that she did that night. I was like, wait a second. I didn't know that was even humanly possible to do the thing she was doing. So that's why it's no shock she's up in Soul Cycle. Yeah, right. And uh, so I, I felt bad for her because she was right behind my row, like literally right behind me. And so my ass was in her face like the <laughs> whole time. But I, I had this thought, I, I, you know, because in, in Soul Cycle, they're playing real up-tempo music, a lot of hip-hop, you know. Did her songs come on? That's that's what I was waiting for. I was right. like, yo, if they put like countdown on right, right. now, I'm just gonna You're turn like, around. I'm gonna fly off my bike. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I'm gonna turn around and watch to see does she sing her own song? Right. Because then we get treated I too. I would. I completely would. Hello. So I you, would sing my own song. You just said you go to a lot of rap concerts. Yeah. Um, you're a big hip hop fan? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. So who's your favorites? So I share a birthday with Jay Z and um December as well. December fourth, huh? yeah. Sagittarius in the house. Yes. Um I actually went to high school with his nephews. Like they also went uh we all grew up together. But um my last concert, I went to a childish Gambino concert at the forum. I'd, I'd never listened to him before, but I was like, wait a second. So impressive. Um, my favorite artist? Yeah. I like old Lil Wayne. Mm. That like drug Lil Wayne. I was in <laughs> right. the middle. I, the, I couldn't. I was like, what are you saying? But like, I like Lil Wayne right now. I liked his last album. Big Meek Mill fan. Same. Love his Drake. album was incredible. Yeah. Yeah. I love Drake off the court. Um <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I don't mind Drake. Um, I, I know he's turned into basically Spike Lee on steroids, right? <laughs> I, but I had to, I had to think like if I had Drake's money, I would be acting a fool. You have think of it from the perspective of the athlete. Like I'm really surprised nobody laid him out. 
Like, oh, I, were honestly, the opposing athlete? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, like, <laughs> I mean, I don't know if I would have showed the same restraint as KD or as Draymond. Because Draymond, like, where is Draymond from? He's from Flint. Or he, no, Saginaw, sorry. I don't uh, know where that is, but it sounds Michigan. like he grew up on the corner. Like, he looks like he throws hands. <laughs> and I'm surprised Drake did not catch one in one of those games. Well, uh, Draymond went to my alma mater, Michigan State. Uh, we went, obviously, at different times. But he... Um, you know, they call his uh, his hometown Saginaw, which Serena Williams is also born there. Fun fact for you. You can repeat at parties. Right. <laughs> um, see, uh, they call it Sag Nasty. Like, that's the nickname for it. So it, it kind of explains the general grit of the city because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a lot of people there work in class. This? Uh, Michigan? Just Michigan, Michigan. Saginaw. Saginaw, yeah, or the Naw or Sag Nasty. That those are kind of two of the the names. But the thing is, I think in in beyond just those competitions, beyond just you know Toronto playing whoever, I, he's friends with a lot of these guys in real life. Mm. So I'm guessing that's part of the reason why none of them have choked him out. But I think he's an excellent troll. Like an excellent troll. Like his, it's you know, you're like you don't particularly care for it. I mean, I don't know. I'm just thinking of it like I, I'm sure I would find it very irritating to have to deal with that while competing. But um, I mean, my my sport isn't as long. I don't have you know four quarters to figure it out. I have like a few seconds of each point to figure it out. And we only have 15 points. So I can't even imagine having to stay level-headed. You know, like so much of of fencing is mental and having to stay level-headed and ignore that kind of stuff. It's not easy to do. I think that the best athletes do have a gift um, and, and, you know, uh, shutting all that stuff out. But I think that would be hard. Like, I'd probably catch a case. (laughs) (laughs) What does, um, one thing I'm curious about is that with fencing, it, well, it used to be before Serena defied every perception possible and all the odds. But there seemed to be an age where people thought, oh, you know, you're too old to be in tennis or you're aging out. Mm-hmm. It, what is that in fencing? When I graduated from college, uh, I was tr- having trouble uh, finding a job. I was applying, you know, to law school and stuff. And during that time, I was also I started fencing. And I looked at Team USA and said, okay, no women of color. I'm a, I am I can do this, but no world ranking, no domestic ranking. I don't even – it was like total leap of faith. Um, but the, the conversation around me trying to make a team was she's too old. I was only, uh, you know, 21 when I graduated and I think uh, 23 at my fr- – when I made my first team, but a lot of people thought one, because I hadn't made it cadet or junior team, uh, wasn't possible, uh, to make an Olympic team. But, um, also that I had almost aged past, uh, the ability to do it. Mm. Um, now you narrowly missed London, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, how did that experience like narrowly missing, did that fuel you even more for 2016? Um, so I, my first world championships was 2010, uh, October of 2010 in Paris, and qualification started in April of 2011. I, ha- I didn't have any real uh, experience on the World Cup circuit and felt like during the qualifications, I didn't even think to ask anybody, hey, how does the qualification work? So um, I, didn't, I didn't even know what I hadn't done when I didn't do it. They're like, you didn't make the team. I was like, yeah, but I didn't even know what I had to do to do it. You know, I was just trying to get better in the sport and like climb from my 250th world ranking to like world number seven. Like that was like just 
constantly climbing. So when I didn't make it, I had this very like crazy ligament tear in my wrist. Like I couldn't hold hands. I had to stop fencing for six months. Like I couldn't shake hands with anyone. I couldn't uh, hold a fencing blade. There was nothing that I could do with my hand. So I didn't make the team. Um, and I remember it seeming like it broke the people around me, you know, like my family felt bad for me. Like, you know, everybody seemed to have this like air of sadness around me not qualifying. And as a person of faith, I, I think of things as, you know, when they don't happen, it's because it wasn't God's plan for you. So I, I didn't feel any kind of way about not making it, but I saw how not making it affected teammates or affected even the people who are close to me and, and them wanting that for me. And uh, I remember being with a friend and, and someone asking me uh, for an autograph. And my friend kind of interjected. The, the little girl asked, you know, uh, you're, you're the fencing Olympian. Can I have your autograph? And my friend interjected and said, she's not an Olympian. And it was in that moment of two things. One, realizing that this girl is not actually my friend. But two, also realizing that... Um, I wanted an Olympic team for like my younger self, you know, and, and me really wanting to make this, this dream a reality. So it became a lot of just changing everything. I changed the way I train. Um, my, my fencing mentor, his name is Keith Smart. He's a 2012 Olympic silver medalist. I literally said, tell me everything that you did. What did your day look like? What was your training look like? What, what things helped you? And I literally just tried to like emulate and like, you know, recreate everything that worked for him. Uh, hired a new trainer, got new coaches, and that's how I found myself on an Olympic team. Wow. Um, yeah, your com- your competitive instincts are um, really admirable. I mean, not that they, not that you wouldn't have these instincts, but um, you definitely sound like the the type of person that whether, you know, you're playing spades or like <laughs> you're, playing spades. you're fencing against somebody like you, you out to kill, like you going for the jugular, you know? Well, you know, when somebody tells you no, right, you have to think of how, how people respond to that. Like, how does that make you feel? Mm-hmm. Like for me, it's like, well, why not? You know, and I think that that why not attitude, I think that's why I like love Russell Westbrook, right? Why not resonates with me so much. I feel like that's my life in a nutshell. You know, when people say there's not something that you're capable of, it's like, well, why not? And that's been um, kind of this, this, this theme throughout my life from the time I was a kid in the classroom to teachers not believing in my ability because I was black, right? Or um, as an athlete, people trying to limit me because I wore hijab or because, you know, I was even a girl uh, coming up through a sport that people specifically as a saberist if, uh, within within the sport of fencing, um, people like don't value the women the same way they do the men. So for me, it's like, well, why not? And the best way to push back is to show people not only that you're capable, but also how well you can do something. Uh, well, that is a drop the mic word. Um, and I hope a lot of people out there who uh, sometimes, you know, we all need these inspiration pickups that they can see these and understand these nuggets because um, that, that's important. I mean, there is going to be setbacks in your life and you're going to have a lot of people who doubt you. Uh, you almost have to have tunnel vision with what the things you're trying to um, achieve. And it's so important that you have the right su- uh, support system too, because what's the old adage? Um, you know, everybody, what is it? Everybody in your circle is not in your corner. A hundred percent. Yeah, I mean yeah. that. Uh, those are words to live by for sure. Because mm-hmm. as you pointed out, you realized in that moment that girl was not your friend. Oh yeah, you know? I always say that. You know, you have to be careful of um, of people just as friends. 
You know, they're going to be people who try to get you to doubt yourself. Mm -hmm. And um, they want to dull your shine. That's their ultimate goal. They don't even know that's their goal. But their goal is to make sure that you do, you never, you know, achieve your full potential. And you have to identify those people quick. Because no matter how old you are, trust me, they're there. Mm -hmm. You just have to, like, seek them out and, like, emit them from your life ASAP. Well, the scary thing about you is that you are just scratching the surface. That's what's so scary. <laughs> and, and like, God knows where 10 years from now with that extensive resume that I, I read from to start this podcast, what that might read like. But thank you so much for spending uh, this time with me. I know you're super busy because you have a thousand jobs. <laughs> Can you do me a favor? Can some of us get a paycheck? Because you got right. all the jobs. All right? <laughs> Look, I'm trying to figure out how I can also get a Jamel Hill Unbothered podcast. So <laughs> that's my next thing. <laughs> uh, baby steps. Baby you know, got to crawl for you can walk. That's right. the way it works. Uh, coming up next, though, um, and I, I feel like this would speak to your spirit, uh, Ifti, is our closing segment, um, which is called, appropriately, Fuck It, I'm Bothered. That's up next. So I tried to shield Ipti from hearing my rants <laughs> for Fuck It, I'm Bothered. I tried to, you know, I mean, even though you did curse a couple times and I was proud, right? I was proud that you cursed a couple times on this podcast. I was trying to shield you from my pettiness, but you insisted on sitting in on the final segment, Fuck It, I'm Bothered, which is my opportunity to go off about shit that is clearly bothering me, even though it's, it is still coming from an unbothered place. It's just that, I have to sometimes call out foolishness. And so... I'm here for it. You're here for it? Yeah. Okay. You, you're good at calling out foolishness, too. So I figured that you would appreciate this. So, fuck it, I'm bothered by L.A. parking spaces. <laughs> now, there's generally a lack of parking in L.A., as it is in any major city. What I'm not here for is if you're going to have a parking space, have a fucking parking space. And I feel like they make me feel as if my car is the biggest in the world. I can't fit in the shit. So every time I'm in a parking garage or even at CVS or whatever, it's like they've made all these spaces so compact tiny. and so yeah. tiny. Yeah. And I am sick of having to squeeze because, you know, sister got hips. Right. right? So I'm tired <laughs> of having to squeeze up out of my driver's side door to try to navigate between that and some close ass pole that they always put next to the fucking parking spaces. It drives me crazy. Can you guys have a grown people's parking space? Instead of these little kid toddler ass parking spaces, why is this some Los Angeles shit? Because I've never experienced this in any of the major cities. Um, now, granted, it's probably the biggest city that I've ever lived in here in L.A. But even when I lived in D.C., they had fully grown parking spaces, fully but grown. not in L.A. where they have little kitty miniature ass parking spaces. I always worry. So, like, forget the squeezing out your car, like sucking your stomach and squeezing out the car. I always worry about my car. Like the door dents, I worry that someone because I drive an SUV. I always worry that somebody's gonna clip it, you mm -hmm. know, because I feel like I'm always hanging out like a full half car length out of a, a parking space. But um, yeah, so I think that how you fix this 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 problem is you got a valet. 
Like, like just valet. Like everybody ain't got empty money. Empty right? doesn't have empty money, but I valet. I like. I hate, 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 hate having you remember where I park my car. I told you, memory of a goldfish. I am like, where is it? Where is it? And stupid iPhone map is just showing me that it's in the parking structure. But what level is it on iPhone? <laughs> right, it's not giving Siri, you to, directly to help there. me help you. Where is the car? You're right. Valet would be a way that I can uh, sort of alleviate this problem. But there are certain places that I go that they don't. Uh, yes, I am still. Like Target, CVS. Yeah, there yeah certain, I'm with you. Those are the places that I'm going that they don't have any valet. Generally, I'm definitely here for valet. But I'm just amazed at how little room they are. Yeah, and how tight true. they are. Like, good luck. You better not have a passenger. They just like, right. you got to roll solo everywhere. No, I, you have to let people out before you get in the spot. Completely. And yeah. I, I'm just like, look, I, I, I could probably rant about this forever because don't let me also get to the fact that the curbs in LA are too fucking high. I don't even want to get into that <laughs> because it, good luck if you have a passenger who opens the door and eh, there's some scrape on your car because these curbs are like seven feet tall. Mm. Damn it, LA. Help me help you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Help me help you. I haven't even noticed the curbs, but maybe that's SUV thing. See, that's... Right? That's right. You're you're above us. I'm not... A- <laughs> <laughs> you're above us. Right. I'm like, I didn't know that. Let's talk about the tickets. Like the parking <laughs> okay, tickets. Okay, so you try to make this a two-hour... Can I have a grace period, please? <laughs> Can I have like a two-minute grace period before you slap a ticket on my car? See, now you're trying to turn this into a two-hour parking podcast in particular because... Uh, I, I have a special hatred in my heart for, um, you know, parking tickets. Mm. I almost didn't get my degree because of one, uh, because of several, sorry, because I owe so much money, they weren't going to give me my degree. But eventually, I paid the money and was able to get uh, my degree. You see how they try to keep us See, I'm the, the man, always right? out here. We, we, we trying to survive and thrive. Right. Trying to keep us down. Parking ticket? <laughs> Done. Well, look, you and your, your big ass SUV. <laughs> <It's not my laughs> big. I just don't have the small sports car you have. <laughs> it's not that small. Don't underboss the Maserati now. Yes, I dropped what it was. But yeah, it, right? <laughs> just had to slide that in there. Anyway, thank you, Empty, again for joining me. I appreciate it. And uh, now I know that whenever I have parking pettiness in me, I need to call you. Yeah, right. I'll bail you out. <laughs> Love Jamal. I got you. All right. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify Studios and Unbothered Inc. and recorded and edited by Rich Burner and Cadence 13. Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Evan Dick is our executive producer. Jesse Burton is the executive producer for Spotify. And Denise Holly is the program manager. Our theme music is provided by Corey Greenleaf and Ben Darwish. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. <laughs> <laughs>